0: Looking for some new podcasts to listen to? Well, Rat Sound Review Network has plenty of shows to choose from. Like Rat Sound Review, where they discuss the latest rock and metal news, as well as interviews and albums. Album vs. Album. The King Diamond Podcast with Wayne Noon, Greg Noggle, and sometimes this guy. him a Ralph Vieira is also on our network with the Vieira Vault. There's also Old Man Metals Musings, where he discusses heavy metal and beer. Music is Life with Lou Mavs. The right opinion for those who love politics. A South Park podcast called Suck My Balls. I watch a watch along wrestling show called Beyond Bushido. Ex guitarist, the Timo Tolki podcast. So check out ratsalreview.com or search Ratsal Review on YouTube, Podbean, iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, and more. It's time for Ratsal Review
1: with your hosts. Wayne Noon, Greg Norgle, and Nate.
0: Welcome to Rat Sound Review, guys, and uh, we got a real treat for you this week. We've got guitarist and vocalist Paul Gaskin from the eponymous, great new wave of British heavy metal slash heavy metal band, Gaskin, and uh, we're here to talk about kind of his stuff through the years, and uh, especially his newest album, which is my personal favorite, The Edge of Madness. Good morning, Paul. Good morning. How are you? I'm doing great. Uh sorry we had to start <laughs> over. <laughs> At least we get a good laugh though. But um yeah, so you without going uh backtracking too much, uh we'll just start where we were again talking about the formation of the band back in uh eighty one nope. there.
1: Yeah, well or eighty. Yeah, well Dave and I met in seventy nine. Uh And we were put together by a a guy called Martin Fish. He was a bass player. I went to meet this Martin Fish in town uh, in a pub there, and he introduced me to a drummer, which, being shallow and young, I thought, he doesn't look like a drummer. And another guy came into the pub with long hair and wearing a duffel coat, and Martin said, oh, he used to be a, a drummer with me. I said, yes, he's our drummer you just looked the part. We arranged a little get-together where David and I played all the way through side one of 2112 by Rush. Uh, he knew all the drum parts, which amazed me, and I knew all the guitar parts, which amazed him, and uh, we decided to form a band. Um, later on, it wasn't really working with Martin, and David got a little bit tired, so he moved to London, and then he rang me up and said, why don't you come down here too? So we went to London, spent about six months there, but still couldn't find a decent bass player. Came back to town for Christmas that year, and early in 1980, he bumped into an old friend of his, uh, Steph Prokopchuk, who uh, played bass. He said, oh, I found us a bass player. You interested. We started rehearsing, and within four months, we were out gigging. And within uh, six months, we'd gone into the studio, Fairview studio, to record a demo. And that was I'm No Fool, Sweet Maker," Despiser, End of the World. How we managed to record, set up, record, overdub and mix all in less than 10 hours, I'll never know to this day, but it must have been youthful enthusiasm, but we did it and two of the tracks obviously became our first single.
0: So um the, the tracks from the single is that the same session as what ended up on the album
1: or no no no. We um we re recorded everything for the album. Uh which was a shame because I actually prefer the raw sound on the original demo. Now, that's partly because of time restrictions. Uh, For instance, I only played the guitar once, all the rhythm guitars. Apart from I'm No Fool, I overdubbed it. I played it twice, and it it made it really big. But on the album version, uh, the engineer suggested I overdubbed the rhythm guitars on all of them, and it ended up, sounding a little, to me, a little weak. It doesn't sound, it isn't as punchy as the original demo. Uh, I think we had too much time on our hands, to be honest. But uh, there was a couple of fluffs in the, in a couple of the songs. In, in Despiser and in End of the World, we made a couple of little mistakes, so we couldn't have used them too anyway. Uh, but like I say, it was the first time we'd been in the studio. What what did we know? We only went there because um, we'd heard uh, the demo that Def Leppard had done there. And we liked oh. the production. Uh, they'd only been in a few months before us. And then just before we went in to do the album, we went to the same place. Uh, which Find had been in there to do their debut album. Wow. Uh, when we'd finished doing the recording, uh, Roy, who was the engineer, said, uh, I've just had a band in from a, a new record label called Rondley. I think they'd be really interested in you. And he gave me uh, Mike's number, The Mike Comerford. He was the executive there. And this is a Saturday when we finished our sessions. I rang him the next day on the Monday And he said, oh, come and see me tomorrow. So I drove over to Mansfield because it was being run from him and Alan uh, Campion. He had his own record shop. And uh, they were selling uh, Wish Finds' debut album there, gave me a copy and uh, listened to the demo and said, where can we sign? It was as simple as that. Two days after we'd been in the studio, I got a record deal. It was, um,
0: amazing.
1: yeah. He said, Well, as long as you're as good live as you are on record, we'll sign you. Um, so we arranged a gig for a, a fortnight later. They came and seen us. And said, Where do you sign? And then the, they started printing up our first single, I Know Full Suite Jamaica. But we hadn't actually signed anything, no pieces of paper, which was a mistake on their part. <laughs> We started doing a lots of gigs with um a guy called Neil Kay, who ran the bandwagon in london and and started Iron Maiden and Praying Mantis and all those bands and he used to do a road show uh, where you'd go because he was um quite big at the time he was you know being written about in the newspapers and he was uh giving a top ten to the music papers locally as well, uh, sounds and melody maker, things like that, of which we featured quite a few times. And he, we listened to his advice, you shouldn't sign to them, I can get you a much bigger deal. Okay, so that was our first mistake. (laughs) We didn't bring out the single that year. We spent a wasted year going around, gigging loads, absolutely uh, building up the following, but not getting this other record deal that he promised. I think Arista was one of the uh, labels he said he was interested in us, but nothing happened, so we went capping hand back to Rondley and, and said, sorry, can we come back? Uh, and being as they'd invested quite a lot of money in that single, they said, yes, you can and then put us in the studio to make the uh, album. But before they did, they made us sign the contract. <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah, I, I'm always amazed that, um, uh, I guess, everyone was real young, and like you said, it happened fast, but uh, your story there fascinates me along with, um, you know, Diamond Head kind of had a parallel situation with their first album,
1: and. I mean had were a, a different kettle of fish. If you were around at the time, you'd know what I mean. I don't know who they had behind them, but when they were nobodies, when we at the same time as us, nineteen eighty, whoever they was running them, I'm not sure if it wasn't one of the dads. It was it?
0: Sean Harris's mom.
1: Was it? Yeah. Well, they must have had an awful lot of money because every week in Sounds Magazine, there was an advert for Diamond Head, a big one. Now, they aren't cheap, and they were in the magazines every week, all the time, Diamond Head, Diamond Head, Diamond Head, buy this new, and they printed their own uh, album. So somebody paid for the recording, somebody paid to have it all printed up, and they were selling these albums through the papers. So even though they weren't I mean, I remember them coming to the Priory in Scunthorpe, and I think there was about 50 people there. And then we played there a month later, and we had 400. So it was horses for courses. You know, we were all on the same circuit, but they were getting known just by pushing the name forward all the time. Um, that's probably why they're so, as famous as they are now. And And then, of course, they got signed up by a really big record label and then brought out their first album, which in my opinion again wasn't half as good as the one they brought out themselves. It's that rawness again, I think. Same mistake as we did. Exactly.
0: and um, um, Well, actually their first album, the demo version, if you want to call it that, but uh, that's probably my favorite record of all time, but One thing I love about both that album and your first album is just the rawness, the immediacy and the the power just from being young and writing your own songs and really being into it. You know, that's just such a moment in time and it captures a great. (laughs) And, uh, yeah, But that's also why I love uh, specifically the single version of I'm No Fool. I actually just uh, ordered from High Roller Records, I think it is, they have out a demo collection of your demos from 80-81. Beyond,
1: Beyond World's End, yeah, that's yeah. right.
0: Yeah, I'm looking forward to that.
1: Well, we've actually um, just got a box set out now, a CD box set, not vinyl, and it's got all four studio albums. And on them is all the bonus tracks that are on Beyond World's End. It's oh, really? um Yeah, it's been released by uh, a Japanese company, uh, Rubicon, because we're supposed to be going over there and touring at some point. We should have been there in May. Uh, and then it got put back to next April. And now it's been put back to next autumn. So if I'm still alive, I might get to do it.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, that's so, mate. I think you would be fine. And then maybe yeah. we'll get you over to the, the States at some point, too. That'd be pretty cool.
1: Yeah, that never happened. <laughs> we oh, always really? They never happened. I'm no.
0: surprised because, you know, one of the things I specifically have always really um, enjoyed about Gaskin is um, the... You definitely have that 70s influence as far as the melody and catchiness goes, which I really like. But you did your own thing with it. But, I mean, to me, it all sounds like tracks that should have definitely been played on the radio.
1: Mm -hmm. Well, I'm influenced a lot by uh, songs of the 60s, if I'm honest. Uh, I was heavily influenced by the bands that I grew up with as a teenager, Black Sabbath... At one time, I would only listen to Black Sabbath and nothing else compared to it because nothing else was as heavy as them. Really? Uh, You don't
0: think Budgie compared? Sorry, not to interrupt you.
1: I did have have In For The Kill. Still got it. In fact, um, there's a track on there called Zoom Club. Oh, yeah. Uh, There's a certain way of playing A chords where you play an open A chord, then you go up five frets and then up seven frets. And I've used that so many times. Sweet Dream Maker's is a case in point. Uh, Lonely Man from that album. Well, um, oh, there's so many. Uh, Lost and Lonely from this, the new album. It's all based on that going up on the A chords, uh, which I pinched from Zoom Club. But like I said, they... And then I started getting into some of the other bands. Deep Purple I was into a big time. I, I loved them. Uh, and then I was in Woolworths. Do you remember Woolworths? Oh, yeah. I was in Woolworths in about 1972, three, 73, I think. And I bought an album just because I liked the front cover. How weird is that? <laughs> uh, I thought, they looked like a rock band. So I bought it, and it was Montrose. Montrose's debut album. I took it home and I thought, fuck me, this is brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. That's one of the best debut albums ever. In fact, the reason I bought Van Halen's first album was because uh, Sounds journalist Jeff Barton had written, this is the best debut album since Montrose. So wow. I've got to have it. (laughs) It was. It was. (laughs) But my approach was a a lot to do. I loved harmonies from the 50s and 60s. I just loved harmony singing. So I had to put them in all my songs. In fact, David used to rein me in. He said, don't put them on everything. And I wanted to put them on everything. I just love them. I love the sound of it. But the two things that I, I really like, which I guess is part of how heavy rock, massive drums and a distorted guitar. I didn't know what a distorted guitar was at the time, but the first time I heard it was um, in about 69, when I heard Spirit in the Sky, Norman greenbow oh, yeah. And I thought, okay. what is that sound? How did he doing that? And that... Uh, very simple now because I've done it many times myself but that bit of lead guitar at the very end of it oh just blew me away and um it's just tracks like that and and then I heard Jimi Hendrix died and they brought out Voodoo Child and that is still possibly my my favorite single of all times it's just incredible and that's what got me the 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 big drums the distorted guitar and harmonies and if you look at most of my stuff you'll find all three
0: you really do and um that's i think for me at least what makes a lot all of it so enjoyable it's very consistent and you incorporate it all well which is you know, it's it's funny because I had mentioned to you when we were talking the other night, I was reading, you know, some of these reviews online by these history revisionists and okay. they're talking about, talking about <laughs> no, no way out. And I see all this stuff that uh, lightened your sound or sold out. I'm like, what in the hell are you talking about? Are you listening to the same record?
1: They have got a point to a degree. Um. There's two points about that. No way out. The track itself, love it. But there's well, there's a couple of points. It had been brought up by Neil Kay in the past that we should really get a front man. Mm-hmm. I mean, I was happy uh, as a three piece. You know, we were big Rush fans, so and I was I was into uh, Budgie and Robin Trower, so I was happy as a three piece but it was a case of visuals, and he suggested we should get somebody. So we tried out a few people. We tried out uh, Steve Mills, who used to uh, sing for Trespass. Uh, We threw him in at the deep end, actually. He learned the four tracks from our demo, and we were supporting girls' school one night. Uh, We only did about nine tracks, but we did uh, four or five of them on our own, and then we did these four with Steve. And he was great, but he just, I don't know, there's something that just didn't quite suit us. And then after we brought the first album out, we did the same thing. We auditioned people again and got this guy called uh, Mick Clark, who had a beautiful soul voice, really bluesy. And then later that year, we did some demos, ostensibly for the second album. And we did two of my tracks and two of his tracks, which you'll hear on Beyond World's End. But his was so poppy. They didn't sound like us at all. Uh, but he sharpened us up quite a lot. He said we were a bit lax. But that was the thing I liked about Dave. He was just wild. But then after, after all these conversations with uh, and rehearsals with Mick, he tightened up and lost some of his flair. And you'll hear a lot of that tightness in the second album. And also we we went... Just slightly, I think, slightly poppier. Uh, there were still some heavy tracks on there. Uh, I can't remember what they're called, but we, we did. <laughs> That's... As every song, we wanted to be different, it wasn't like we wanted to repeat ourselves every time. We didn't want to have a formula. For instance, uh, there's a track on there called Free Man," mm-hmm. and all that came from. Was David saying, "I want to do a syncopated higher," and it was based around that. I, I came; he started playing it, and I came up with that with that riff. And it was just around that. And then I started writing about something that had just happened. We'd um, been rehearsing at his mum and dad's house, and I parked outside where there was a double yellow line. And I walked out and I was getting a ticket. <laughs> so if you hear the lines, uh, um, and I can't afford the fine, this is where it's from. <laughs> <laughs>
0: oh, that's funny.
1: Yeah. But we also, again, we tried to get, a, a guy came into town that all the guys knew, Brent Spencer. And although he didn't have much of a voice, he was one hell of a showman. He was like the Diamond Dave of Scunthorpe. Uh, but like I say, he couldn't sing really well. But we, he auditioned. We did the Sheffield Poly, Sheffield Polytechnic. And he was all over the place. He was climbing the PA speakers. He was all over. It was magic. Really got the crowd going. But when we went into the studio, I thought, this isn't working. I really couldn't get him to sing. In fact, on some tracks I was getting him to record them line by line and I was singing, I was sat next to him, next to the phone and I was singing the line and then getting him to copy it, but he couldn't even copy it. And I ended up having to sing half of the stuff anyway. Uh, a lot of the things he couldn't sing, like, Say Your Last Word, which is one of David's tracks. It's a ballad. He couldn't sing that, so I sang that. Uh... What's that was song? Queen of Flames. He couldn't reach mm-hmm. that, so I had to sing that as well. The, the one song which really suited him, because it was a sort of non-singing song, <laughs> was No Way Out. Uh, and that's one we wrote after he joined us. All have been fine. And, uh you see, we, my brother took all the photographs for the album. Um the uh, inspector at the local police station said we could use the place, it even l- lends us two policemen and a police car, and <laughs> they, they were doing some work on the cells. So it looked like we were uh, escaping from the place. But we had uh, two some photographs as a four piece, and some photographs as a three piece because we still weren't sure which way we were going to do it. In the end, we went with a four piece, but then we started having big rows this is eighty two and Dave and I were falling out quite a lot. We were during the recording of the second album, um, because we had we were going in different directions. I wanted to go much heavier, and that record didn 't do it for me and David wanted to go. More mainstream, uh, Brian Adams, that kind of thing. Oh, that would be too much of a a shift for our audience. I, I didn't like it. So, Bren and I decided to quit and go out on our own. Um, and it was late, late '82, I think it was, when we, I can't remember where we were, but Dave came up to us, I can't do this anymore, and he quit. And I turned to Brendan and said, Well, that saved us a job. (laughs) And then we went to London in 83. And I could talk for hours about the adventures I had in London in 83. (laughs) I was awake, most of it, let's say that much. (laughs) And uh, we did eventually find a great bass player, Dave Goujelot, and uh, a drummer, Dave Wagstaff. It was amazing. And uh, we were down to play the Dingwalls. We were going to be the first heavy rock band to play Dingwalls in London. And so we did a, a warm-up show first. Uh, and then I I made the mistake of listening to the tape, which wasn't very good quality, but it, I can't do this anymore. And I, I just completely packed in. But I think my head was in a different place. I'd been awake too long and right. uh, had a bit of a breakdown uh, I just decided I've had enough so I sold up sold my guitars and everything and moved back to town and gave it up for a couple of years I wish I hadn't I was doing rather well at the time <laughs> That band was really good in fact some of the things I was writing at the time turned up on Stando Fall uh, Breaking My Heart that was one track that I wrote, I
0: love
1: that song, that's a good one. Yeah, yeah, we usually keep that in our live set. And, um, City of Light, I wrote that about London while I was living in London, that was another one that turned up. So, yeah, so what made
0: you decide to reform, uh, come the year 2000 or so? I mean, did. I would assume you you started playing again before then, but
1: I started playing again two years after about eighty five And I never stopped. I was, um, I started a little three piece band called hardcore, which morphed into a four piece band called Moscow. And again, I was just writing my own songs. Um, some of them turned up on stand or fall. Some of them have never been recorded. Uh, and then I was playing in cover bands. I just never stopped playing. But then in, in the early 90s, uh, people were getting in touch with me saying, hey, this Neil Kay, remember Neil Kay? Yeah. Well, he's put uh, an, uh, an SOS in some magazine or other. He's looking for you. Can you get in touch with him? Okay. And it was because the first two albums were going to come out on CD for the first time in Japan on pony canyon and uh i'm not quite sure why he wanted me for it but anyway uh, he he, he did uh i think there was some talk about maybe going on tour in japan then but i didn't have gasking together i couldn't do it but on the back of that there was some interest in me so i went into the studio and recorded another three track demo on there was uh Brit uh, what do you call it? What was the first track on Edge of Madness? <laughs>
0: uh, oh man, I don't have it sitting in front of me,
1: guys. Uh, can't remember that myself. Anyway, that one <laughs> First track, second track, and uh what was the other one? Gee. It's a book when you can't remember your own songs, isn't it? Yeah, Man's, world, that, Man's world. Man's world was, was
0: I was
1: just listening to it this morning, too, and Damn all nation. I can remember. Right. Damnation. Yes. Damnation. Yes. I recorded, you know, that uh, nice keyboard part at the beginning, just before dawn. I recorded that. I recorded Damnation, Heart Like Thunder. I recorded that and Man's World. Uh, and then I looked for some interest. Um, but nothing seemed to be happening at the time. And then a friend of mine said that they could do as an album. So, again, it's just through people you meet. I didn't have any money at the time, but there was a guy called Tony Leonard, who used to be drummer for the uh Gary Glitter Band, the Glitter right. Band. And he had a studio over in Lincoln, out in the wild somewhere. And he said, oh, Paul, I'm, I'm not using it much now, so if you want, you can use it when I'm not using it, uh, and he showed me all the controls and stuff to how to use it, and then and just come over and use it as much as you want, and then we'll do a deal. If you get a deal at the end of it, you can give me half of the money. Okay, we'll do that. And then so I was in and out of his studio for about four months on my own. It was Sanderfall's basically a, a a solo album. I played everything.
0: Really.
1: Uh, Yeah, Uh, there's a solo on there by a friend of mine um, on, I can't remember what track it was, (laughs) England my England, that was it, England my England. He did a solo for that, and on City of Lights, I had an old friend, Mick Cooper, who had played in various bands with me, and I got him to do the bass for it, just to get them on the album. Other than that, it was a solo album. But when I finished it, and I had it all in the can, uh, interest seemed to have died because nobody was interested anymore. So I think I was about 91, 92. So basically, just sat in a a collecting dust for about eight years. And then one of my best friends, Andy Richmond, was up in Newcastle doing the deal
0: Dog, yeah. yeah.
1: I <laughs> anyway, uh, my friend was up in Newcastle doing a deal for something else with Jess Cox. Oh, uh, the Tigers. And when he finished that, he said, I've heard of a band called Gaskin. He said, oh yeah, I've heard of Gaskin. Well, he's got an unreleased album, you know. Would you be interested? And Jess said, yeah, let me have a listen. So, bless his heart, uh, I sent the album up to Jess, loved it. Um, He sent it out to a few of his contacts in Europe and and abroad. They loved it. So he released it. Um, So it it came out in 2000. But on the back of that, I think it was about a month after we decided to do the thing together, he said, uh, Would you like to play at Wacken? And I said, what's Wacken? He says, oh, it's a pretty big festival out in Germany. Yeah, okay. Well, I've got you on with another five New bands uh, to do a special out there in August. So that's when I put the band together, Andy Solomon, uh, Dave Pick, because Dave Norman couldn't do it. He was gigging at the time. And uh, Tony Ilcu, and we spent six months rehearsing. Went out and did it. Absolutely amazing. I've done festivals in my time, but never anything on that that size. I mean, we, it's huge, man. If you've ever seen any bands playing at Wacken, you'll know what I mean. And I've seen uh,
0: videos,
1: yeah, yeah, it's awesome. Really awesome. That was a fantastic weekend, and uh, it was. Pretty good fun with the other guys as well, because we're all in a bus together, you know. There was Angel Witch, Samson, uh, Grim Reaper, I think, Praying Mantis, and Savage, and us.
0: Wow, that's a nice line-up.
1: Yeah, it was, uh, it was pretty good. So I made some good friends that weekend, especially Paul Samson. Me and him me, uh, were quite close for a while. In fact... Uh, I went through a bit of a bad time a couple of years later where I'd stopped getting in touch with him. My marriage was breaking up and I was, it was the beginning of the edge of madness. <laughs> <laughs> and I was in a pub one night on my own because a friend of mine was doing a solo set. Uh, and he came over after he'd finished his first set, sat down with me He said, I'm sorry to hear about your friend. I said, what friend? It Paul Sampson. I said, "Why? What about him?" And he told me he died. Uh, that didn't help my mood at the time. I've got to admit, and it was so sad. He yeah, had cancer. I knew there was something wrong because a couple of years before that, we—he was in a—he got another band called uh, Metallic Blue, which is okay. basically a blues band. I said, oh, you have to come up and I'll arrange a gig for you in town and I'll put a scratch band together and support you. Oh, that'd be great. So we did that and we just did some blues classics. Um, oh, that's and really then cool. We had a bit of a jam at the end of his set. He invited me on stage. I've got one photograph of the pair of us together and I treasure that. Uh, <laughs> I said, what are we doing? He said, just something in A, just follow me. Okay. And he kicked it off. And at one point, I made the mistake of going to the left, to his side of the stage, and I nearly had my ears blown off. He was so loud. Unbelievable. But, yeah, a lot of friendships were made that weekend. It was fantastic. So we did that whacking thing, and uh, the album did rather well. And... Never stopped since. We just kept getting different things offered. Uh, Well, there was a hiccup, obviously, two years later. uh, My marriage broke up and I went through a bit of a bad time and nobody could get in touch with me. Jess couldn't find me, didn't know where I was. But when uh, I did start putting the feelers out again, he put me on a few more festivals in Germany and places like that. And we just kept doing bits of gigs here and there ever since. And then, uh, latterly, Dave Norman and I got back together again and started doing some shows, anniversary shows. I think the first one was the 25th anniversary, and we put a a band together for that. Again, there was something wrong with my throat at the time, so we uh, asked a guy called Andy Wood to sing for us. I've got to admit, I love it when I've got a singer because I can just concentrate on the guitar doing maybe a few backing vocals, but it's nice not to have to think about doing both at the same time. It really is. You've got a certain freedom. And then we did that. And then he'd started building a studio in his house. And so he said, why don't we do a new album? I said, well, I have got more than an album's worth of uh, stuff to record. Let's get at it. But it took altogether before release, about five years, mainly because of him, because um, I had arranged to go around and do something, and he didn't ring me up in the last minute and say, oh, I've got something on. And it just took forever. So I was really glad when it did get finished and released. But it is, along with you, it, it's my f- personal favourite, and a lot of me in it.
0: And and you can really tell, and I think that even even though you would like to focus on the guitar playing more, um, I love your vocals on Edge of Madness. Probably again, it's my thing you've done. There's just so much feeling and soulfulness in it, and you can tell it's very personal. And I I went through something kind of similar. So there's songs on there like Wake Up Dead, which is actually my favorite song from it, and probably. The only time I could ever say my favorite song on an album is a ballad, actually. But uh, that's that's like Don't Fear the Reaper level in catchiness and just a great, great classic track there.
1: Oh, I'm surprised you call it a ballad, though. I don't, I don't consider it a ballad because of the dynamics of it. I know there's quiet parts in it, but then it thumps at times. What we try to do...
0: Be a ballad more like long. song that's multi-faceted uh, yeah. yeah I don't look at it as like the whole power ballad type
1: bullshit you know <laughs> yeah, that because I had the words I had the melody I had the basics of what I wanted to do with it but I wasn't sure how much I wanted to put in it where to put the keyboards what sound I wanted for the keyboards what sound I wanted for the guitar it was all Pretty much uh, trial and error. And what we did try to do at that point, it's not, you won't hear the same guitar sound as on the others. It's not quite as distorted. What we did try to do, like an Alex Lifeson, and put less distortion them about, you know, overlays, so you hear them guitars as uh, uh, either six or seven or eight different guitars all playing the same thing at the same time. Mm-hmm. That gives it that distinct sound. Yeah, but it was a hard one to do. And uh, there was a couple of things that uh, surprised me, that Dave did over the top that I didn't know about at the time. I told him at the end, we'd, we'd got the uh, the music all finished. I told him at the end, I want a heartbeat and then I want this uh, baseline that I'd written to fade from up the front into the background. So he's pulling the faders down and pushing the uh, reverb up at the same time. Uh, Until we heard it for the first time, uh, I I didn't hear him doing that. And also what he did, which... uh, it was quite cool. I thought, if you hear me singing the first lines, you'll hear like a whispering over the top, yeah. and he put that on. And I thought, what's that? And he said, "Oh, I, I just had this thought that maybe if I whispered over the top to your words, it might, might add something." And it it really did. It was very, very original. I so. thought,
0: yeah, it's uh, that, that's actually what. It, um... What catches your attention i feel like right off the bat it's uh it's di- different very innovative
1: I, I love Andy's solo in the middle of, that's andy playing the, the lead solo in the middle of that though and oh it's oh, just really so... i
0: couldn't tell i thought it was you
1: <laughs> no that's andy solo yeah
0: yeah, and then uh, well, lost and lonely—that's another one of my favorite tracks on it. And um, you said that was actually from way back uh, mid '80s. Well, oh,
1: well. It's not from way back. No, no, it—it it was meant to feel like that. There was a a band in Brazil. I think they call Natal Pride or something. Natal Pride, something like that. And this guy, he got in touch. You know, as people often do, and we started talking. And they did uh no covers different bands. And I was thinking about one day and we I'd just moved in to a place with a friend of mine. Just a four track recording gear so I could do some demos. I thought, right, here we go. I'll 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 try it out. I've got this little pedal which has a, a basic drum kit in it. So on one track I just went boom, just, boom. And then I thought, why? If they're in the Wobberham band, they want to sound like we did. So I came up with a riff similar to Sweet Dream Maker, that kind of feel. And then uh, there's a nice little guitar part over oh, which uh, comes when you're playing back things, and you think, oh, that would be nice. And then. I threw every sort of sword and sorcery kind of uh, lyric into it that I could think of. I was thinking of uh, Ronnie James Dio at the time, and I tried to put everything into the lyrics that I could. Uh, and, and basically it was just a a, a kitsch go at copying the kind of style we used to do. And I sent it off to him. But then when it came to doing the album, I thought, do you know, I like this track. I think I had to do it myself, and so I did.
0: And, you know, that's that's one of the things I find so brilliant about Edge of Madness, too, is it all sounds like it could have been done back then, but it sounds fresh, and the production is great, and, I mean, from beginning to end, there isn't a song I dislike on it. It's just such a great record. It's, like I said, my personal favourite. Well, there you
1: should know, actually be... Uh four more tracks on it. We wanted to do a, a double album. Um, two of the tracks uh, are acoustic tracks, and they are on Beyond World's End, so you'll hear them. Um, Come to Me is one, and that's what Friends are for. And they're both acoustic tracks that we used to do back in the day, when we were Ooh. a three-picks, back, back in uh, 1982. Um, when before Bren joined us, uh, and Baggy was with us, we were a three piece with Baggy. We used to, we did quite a few gigs as a three piece, and then about half through the set, they would do a, a drum solo, and it was just a case of him getting his wind back. So, I, we used to do these two acoustic songs a bit Led Zeppelin ish, if you like, you know, like they used to do that acoustic set in the middle. So, we used to do these two, and I thought. Really, we ought to bring them out on record. So we recorded them. And there's also two more rock tracks, which nobody's heard yet. Oh, no, actually, it's one of them has been heard. We we have a live recording of a track called... Um, uh, no, I can't remember it again. <laughs> uh, anyway, we've got this little recording. Um, it was a kind of tongue-in-cheek one about uh, but enjoying being with two ladies at the same time, shall we say. Oh, okay. And we, if we ever got an extra encore, we used to do that one. Uh, and that was on there. And there's another track as well that I had from the early 90s that were recorded, but that hasn't come out anywhere yet, so... It may yet. We'll, we shall see. Do, but do you have we, any? And we went to um, High Roller, and they only wanted a single album. So we said, okay. So we picked the sort of ten best, and and put that on. the The little acoustic one, track nine. I was doodling on my acoustic guitar one afternoon. I thought, oh, this is nice. And I thought, I wonder what it did sound like if we recorded it. And it's only about what a minute and a half, something like that. I think so, about a minute 30. Yeah, I really I really like that. Um, and it was again, it was after um, a love affair had gone a bit sour, It'd gone up, up the so I wanted to call it I Loved You. Um, I thought, well, yeah, that sounds all right, but wouldn't it be nice if it was in Latin? <laughs> <laughs> when I went to grammar school, we. The first year we did we did Latin and we had this book called The Latin Way and the first page it was a moa massa matamatis a matis a mat. Never forget I love, you love, he's here, it loves, blah, blah, blah. But uh so I Googled what is I loved you in Latin, and it came te amavi That's the one. That sounds great, that sounds very posh. We'll use that. <laughs>
0: I I love it. And um, you know, it, uh, it re- reminds me in a way as an interlude kind of uh like Sabbath would do in the seventies, like with yes. Fluff on
1: Yeah. yeah. And yes.
0: It's it, it, not that it sounds derivative, but just it's it carries that same but idea. I, and I love
1: All it. The, I did have that idea in my head that it sounded a bit like those early albums, yeah. And he goes Segue's is great into the actual title track, I think. Because that's flow as well. That's, um, that's a very powerful one, I think. I, I, I almost fainted a couple of times singing that. Uh, <laughs> we've got compressors on, so the difference between my quiet singing and my loud singing isn't as pronounced as it was in the room you might say, but, oh, I was giving it so, and I always did when I played it live as well. It always felt emotional, like I was really bringing it out from the heart, you know.
0: It's a really emotional song, even in the guitar licks and all. Yeah, God, I... Yeah, yeah you ever do any uh, uh, uh demo, uh, you know, in the studio on that? I'd be very curious to hear that.
1: <laughs> well, we did... We recorded that album uh, about three times fully. We started off recording it uh, with Dave playing on his electric drum kit in his room and me playing just through a little pedal. Uh, And some of those uh, original uh, guitar parts are actually still in the, uh, the album. We weren't going to do it. Uh, everything else was re-recorded through proper amps. But there's there's two or three places where I couldn't improve on what I'd already done through that pedal, so we kept it. Um, my two favourites, the two tracks for me that uh, sum up the album best, shall we say that, are The Edge of Madness itself and The Contract to me i i I think I've reached my pinnacle. I don't think I've got a better metal track than the contract. That's my own personal opinion anyway. It just had everything I ever wanted to hear in a metal track
0: i I'd have to agree with you there I mean that's it. well, you know the album like I feel it's the definitive gaskin album nothing against. The, the other three, I mean, I love them all for different reasons, just like Contract, Edge of Madness, and Wake Up Dead, Lost and Lonely. They're all just classic, but... Um, Thank you. Yeah, it, it, Edge of Madness itself is just something... I mean, it's such an epic... That's what a closing track should be. Yeah. And... Um I, re- I really your guitar tone on that I think is the best you've probably ever had too not that it sounds real different from what you did before but it's, it's a clearer more emotive almost I want to say
1: well I kept getting knocked back by Dave and Andy because <laughs> I wanted a lot more distortion on the guitar and they said, no, no, because if we're going to overdub them, because Andy was doing the same sort of tracks as me, so we're doing it at the same time. If we do too much distortion on your guitar, then it'll just sound muddled. I went, oh, okay. Uh, and then we, we actually use seven uh, amp. Uh, we use my amp, which is a black star. A couple of tracks, like the sort of cleanish uh, distortion we've got on Man's World. I was going through uh, an amp that Dave's got called uh, an Orange Tiny Terror. It's a tiny little <laughs> amp, but so powerful. And then Andy went through his amp, which um, I'm not quite sure which one he used now, but well, we did use several different amps for for that, but we tried to make it uh, a clean with keeping the distortion. You know, so we could be clear another thing we uh, we used as well, the keyboard intro to damnation, we redid that from memory and using all sorts of different uh, keyboards, and it didn't sound the same. It didn't sound the same as that demo I'd done in nineteen ninety, but I didn't have a copy of it, but I knew that Roy, the engineer always kept copies of everything he recorded of every band. So I, I uh, found out where he lived. I gave him a call and said, Roy, have you still got our demo? And he said, yeah, because he used to record, uh, this is back in the day before digital, he used to record all the tracks from the two-inch tape down onto VHS tape because it was oh, wow. thicker. And so he sent me uh, a CD version that he'd burned of that original demo, and we took the original uh, keyboard part and put it on. It was actually a little bit longer than uh, what you hear on the album, but of course the guitars came in, so we had to cut them off, obviously. Uh, I called it Just Before Dawn, basically, because that's when I wrote it. when I did that demo, I, um, I did it on uh, three nights, con- consecutive nights, because it was cheaper. <laughs> <laughs> and then I thought, I need a keyboard part. And I went outside, and Dawn was just coming up. I just went out there to wake myself up and get a breath of fresh air. And I came back in and uh, got on the keyboard and just made it up on the spot, did some overdubs and that's what you hear on the album yeah also uh, another fun fact was um the initial lyrics to damnation people look around you just what do you see etc the first two verses i wrote those back in ooh 72 73 when wow. yeah when i was 15 i uh, i joined a, a group of friends as a singer, I couldn't play guitar, uh, but I just wanted to be out there. And so, but when everybody else was going one, two, want you check one, two into the microphones, Isaac. People look around you. Just what do you see? Uh, just to try it out, and it has all the things of the one, two, as the s's, the f's, else. And then I thought, one of these days, I'm going to turn that into a song. <laughs> I did. <laughs> That's pretty awesome. i tell you what I must just tell your listeners, because we talked about it before you turned the record on. <laughs> oh, yeah.
0: <Whoops.
1: laughs> the reason, folks, that I sound a little bit weird and my S's are a bit funny is because I've had oral cancer last year. Just call me lucky. And they took, took away part of my tongue and part of my cheek and took a big chunk from my arm and put it in my mouth. And I've got it to be trimmed off yet at some point when this stupid COVID goes away and I can get back in the the hospital. But that's why I sound a little bit funny. And sadly, I can't sing at the moment, but there you go.
0: And thanks for coming on. And um, I'm glad you're getting better. And hopefully, you know, COVID's done and, he, he get you back to singing, and uh, maybe a new Gaskin record soon.
1: <laughs> I have got the songs, but whether I've got the motivation because I have a do, I do have a new band now. Well, oh. I say I have a new band. We haven't. We started putting it back together in uh, 2017, and because of different illnesses, <laughs> we've not been out yet. Uh, it was. Um, the brainchild of uh, Gary Pearson and myself. Gary Pearson was Vardis's drummer. We became good friends, so we started to. He was diagnosed with um, something bad in his neck, and he was advised by his uh, doctor not to drum anymore. And he said, fuck you, I, I can't stop drumming." But he thought he, maybe he ought to do something less thrashy than Vardis. So I said, well, I'm I'm really into blues rock. He said, oh, let's give it a go, is he? And he came up with a name for the band. It's called Crossover. And then uh, I asked Kev Riddles, another good friend of mine, from Angel Witch, Titan, uh, if he'd play bass with us. He said, yeah, it'd be great fun. So the three of us got together. We had a few goes. Sounded fantastic. And there was another friend I'd made. His name is Mike Stars. Uh, he used to sing with Coliseum 2, with Gary Moore and John Heisman. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, he's getting on a bit now, bless him, but he's still got the pipes. And uh, and so he joined. it, And then we got a guy called Martin Howells on keyboards. And we started writing music, and it was f- freaking great. And then I was diagnosed with angina, and I had to have some an operation. I had to have a triple bypass. So we We went in the studios real quick, made the demo. It's on YouTube. one's called uh, Fifty Shades of the Blues," and the other one's called "Bad Girl uh by crossover. so if you type them in you'll find them. They're very rushed. We only did them in six hours, but it, it gave us a flavor and so that that took that took us into uh, two thousand and eighteen and in two thousand and eighteen. Mike got diagnosed with blood cancer. So he had to start having treatment for that. Then a bit further on, uh, Gary's wife got breast cancer, all in the same year. Wow. And so it was going real bad. And then we got to the end of 2018, and we thought, right, we're all ready to get together again. And Martin had to have an operation on his hand, for his keyboard hand. Uh, so, and then Gary decided it was too much travelling, and then Kev moved down to Deal, which is 200 miles away, so it was I mean, impossible for him to go in. But we did manage to uh, get a replacement. We got um, Dave Pick on drums, who was with me at Wacken, okay. and we got uh, a guy called Ken, who played with Mike in a. The New Animals. Remember The Animals? Yep. Mike was the singer for The New Animals and he he sang on a couple of records for The New Animals and Ken was the bass player so he got together and we are all ready to go February of this year we got together sounded fantastic Ken was just a brilliant bass player exactly what I was looking for sounded To me, like Andy Fraser from Free. He was that kind of guitarist. And he really slotted in with Dave on the drums. So Mike and I looked at each other and said, yes, this is it. We've got it. And COVID hit. And that was that. Not played a jot since. (laughs) Well... I look forward to hearing
0: it eventually when it gets completed. It sounds awesome. I'm going to have to go check out them demos.
1: Yeah, it's a lot bluesier than uh, I've done. But I've always had this internal conflict between the styles of music I want to play. Uh, I've got this metal thing in the back of my head and this bluesy thing in the side of my head. And they're always conflicting. That's probably why uh, my tracks are so different all the time. Because I always want to go in different directions. That's why you get the sort of different feels.
0: Yeah, it it, it makes it very unique, though. And, you know, but you got that unifying idea that always ties it together. But I I like the different flavors like that. And I think that's one thing that's missing from, you know, a lot of especially modern bands. They get caught on one sound and they want everything to sound like that. And there is no variety, you know, that was one reason.
1: Yeah, mm-hmm. uh, gets boring after a yeah. while.
0: And that was one reason why I always loved Blue Oyster Cult because you know they would incorporate so many different things on the album, and then that all five of them sang to top it off. So
1: yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: And that's actually what Gaskin reminds me a lot of on Edge of Madness and uh, No Way Out. I mean, not No Way Out, in or Fall. <laughs>
1: I'll take that. I'll take that. <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> but um, yeah, one last question, since we, we've been talking about it, because I don't want to hold you too long. We've already gone a half hour over. I'm only
1: twenty eight percent, so I'm getting I'm getting quite low. <laughs> okay.
0: Um, but since you've got uh, you mentioned all these live shows, are, are there any live recordings that may come out at some point?
1: David has got hours and hours of live stuff and we've been promising a live album for years but he can never get his ass into gear to do it uh, I'm sorry about that but I don't own the copies he's got, he's got them all uh, but the trouble with David is he always gets um, distracted and taken up by some new project and whenever there's a new project he goes for that hell for leather and all the old stuff is left behind. So it may at some point in the future, but if anybody's got a bootleg, bring it out now. You'll make some money. (laughs) Yeah.
0: Well, (laughs) thanks for coming on, Paul. This has been been a really fun interview. Yeah. Great. And hopefully we can have you on sometime in the future, just talking about something else. Maybe talk about Rush or, you know, whatever. I think it'd be a lot of fun. And
1: uh, peace in by then.
0: Yep. (laughs) Yeah. I I wish you a speedy recovery. And I hope, you know, stupid COVID doesn't make it take too much longer.
1: Yeah. And uh,
0: for everyone out there listening, go out there, high roller records website, and get yourself a copy of Edge of Madness. You will not be disappointed. Thank you guys. Have a good night.
1: Cheers.